0: Hi, everyone. In this wild time, Laleh and I have found ourselves going back to the episode we recorded with Eat, Pray, Love author Elizabeth Gilbert last year. Our conversation was filled with a little grief, a lot of joy, and plenty of travel wisdom, all of which we need right now to tide us over until we can travel freely again. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode answering all sorts of questions about traveling right now, like what you should do about your summer and fall plans, what we can expect from air travel when this is all over, and whether or not you should be cashing in on those amazing flight deals available right now. If you have a question of your own, please direct message me or Lale on Instagram. I'm at oh hey there, Mayor, and she's at Lale Hannah, so we can address yours. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy our chat with Elizabeth. Everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Conde Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, lali Ericoglu Hi. This week, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by a woman who really needs no introduction, author and traveler extraordinaire Elizabeth Gilbert. Hi.
1: Oh my God, were you really going to do no introduction? Because usually people say that and then they do an introduction anyway, but you actually upheld that. That's amazing. I mean, amazing. I feel
0: like people... Who are listening to this (laughs) podcast, who have read Eat, Pray, Love, or Big Magic, or any of the multitude of other books that you've written, probably guessed uh, that you were the Liz Gilbert of Elizabeth Gilbert. I
1: love it. Yeah, I just want to applaud you because I've heard that a million times, not from me, but just in many times sitting in an audience where they've said, this person needs no introduction and then follows a (laughs) five-minute
0: introduction. Um, So uh, like, great. Let's just go. Let's do this. (laughs) Well, thanks for calling in, first of all. Yeah. But I would love to talk to you about one of those books kind of, sort of. I feel like Eat, Pray, Love was a very specific era of your life and it's been time now uh, since it came out and since you took the trip that inspired it. Um, So I'm curious how your relationship with travel has changed over the years since that very iconic moment that most people know of your travel.
1: Well, I think my relationship to travel has always been pretty much the same, which is just a kind of ferocious eagerness and a pit of my stomach-driven desire to be in all the places at the same time. Um, so, so that really hasn't changed. One thing that I will say that I thought was interesting is that um, the 10-year anniversary of Eat, Pray, Love was very recently, and I was asked to write a foreword for it for a new edition. And I hadn't read the book since I had written the last page of it. And to sit down 10 years later and read it was really interesting to me. But the thing that I was most fascinated by and surprised by was how much of that book I spend apologizing for what I'm doing in the pages of that book and saying things to the reader like, "Um, I know it's really super flaky of me to be blowing off my entire life and to have done this, or I'm embarrassed to be a 34-year-old woman who really should be at home in a house with a husband and kids, and instead here I am gallivanting around southern Italy. And there's all these places in the book where there's this tremendous self-consciousness that I was aware of and I kept saying to my younger self, what in the world are you apologizing for? And and the line of the book that really broke my heart was in the Italy section where I said to the reader, I know, I get it. I know that eventually I'm going to have to settle down and have a normal life and be a respectable, responsible adult woman. And I promise that I will do that, but not yet. Let me just have this one year. And when I read that, it really broke my heart because I thought I, thought I was being so bold to take a year and do that. But as I read it now, as somebody who's almost 50, my thought is... Why did you stop? And why did you think you had to stop? And why did you think that you owed anybody a respectable life? That's insane. Um, so I guess that's changed. <laughs> so that I don't apologize for my travels anymore. A lesson that we should all learn in life. I feel. <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
2: Um, and so you know, you mentioned that you're nearing fifty now. When you're traveling, have your priorities changed compared to that trip back then?
1: I don't think so. I think my priorities are still the same, which is to try to have as rich and intimate an experience as I can possibly have while not going to any museums. I'm <laughs> sorry that hasn't changed. I'm such a oh God, I'm such a cultureless dolt. You know, I, I I I can't bear it. I can't bear to spend time while I'm in a new city walking around inside a museum, or really inside at all. I think my my priorities are still the sense that the best way for me to experience a new place is on foot, until your feet fall off. You know, you just you just walk and walk and walk until you cannot walk anymore, and that and that's how you learn a city, and that's how you meet people.
0: I'm curious, what when you get off the plane in a new place, what is your uh, go-to first thing when you touch down?
1: I take a nap, and I know that there are that's breaking every rule of um of jet lag advice. I break all the rules of jet lag advice. I do eat and drink on the plane because I think it's really fun to have to get a little wasted on a plane with the <laughs> wine. and um and and so I usually arrive like I, I break, I don't do any of it, right? Like I, I arrive dehydrated and really tired, and then I instantly go to sleep. and um and I've just, I've tried it the right way, the way that you're supposed to do things um, where you force yourself to stay awake and try to create a new schedule, but I can't seem to do that. I think it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking a bath and taking a nap and like waking up even if you're waking up at eight o'clock at night to, to begin your adventures that eventually my, my realization with jet lag is that your body will eventually sort it out. You don't have to do anything particularly fancy. just just like suffer through it and eventually you'll, you'll adjust.
2: Um, here at Traveller, we talk a lot about the rise in solo travel among women. Um, Yay! <laughs> and women are traveling more and more alone and feeling more and more emboldened to do so. And I was wondering what do you think has led to that and how much of a role you think that you and your book and the movie that was born out of it has played in it and just allowing other women to see other women do that same thing.
1: God, if if I played any role in it, then I will die a happy woman. Um, I don't think that I am a maverick at all. I think my general rule is by the time I've heard of something or I'm doing something, you can be absolutely certain that it is standard or, you know, like – if I move to a neighborhood, that's the day that you can officially say that it's been gentrified. If I've heard of a cool new city, that's the day that it's not the cool new city anymore. You know, I'm never on the front lines of anything like this. Um, so if I was doing that, if I had the desire in 2003 to travel alone, it's because I already knew that it was okay for women to do that. So, um, But but I, I, I get really excited whenever – you know, I'm at a book signing or something, and you know, and and a woman will tell me that she's just taken a trip by herself, and and it's not always the most adventurous ones that excite me. It excites me, you know, is when it's somebody who has no travel experience whatsoever, who may live in the flyover parts of America, who may have a real job and a husband and a family, and she may have gotten some sort of a deal to go to Paris for five days, and stay in a package, you know, a hotel and take tours. And for her, in her experience, and 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 what's considered normal for the people around her, that is the most radical, like, life changing thing um, that that could possibly happen. And I think it's completely thrilling to hear it. Um, and and I almost get more excited by that than when I get excited by people saying, you know, they've they've gone off to Tanzania for for. For years or something because I think well you were always going to be somebody who did who did wild and inventive things but when I see women who wouldn't typically um, travel at all traveling alone even in what I would think of as very safe circumstances it just makes me really happy anything to get people out of their homes basically.
2: Out of interest in 2003 uh, when you set off on that epic trip did you know many other women who were off traveling alone or were you a bit of an outlier among your circle of friends?
1: Uh, I I had female friends who had done some pretty cool stuff. I had um, my friend Cree and her sister had done an amazing three-month trek in Nepal. I had some friends who worked in international aid who were doing travel at a very different level that is actually brave. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, so it wasn't so foreign to me. And I'd been a traveler myself up until that point as well. But what was more interesting to me were the people who I met while I was on that journey for the year, I met a lot of women who were traveling by themselves. And whether it was at the ashram in India or whether it was at Italian school in Rome um, or whether it was at a yoga class in Bali, I, I kept running into people who were doing not dissimilar things to me and not for dissimilar reasons. Usually, um, you know, after a breakup, you either cut your hair or you go on a trip, right? Like that's, that's what all women do. <laughs> So uh, I met a lot of women with short hair who were on the other side of the world from the guy that they had just left. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you mentioned book tours earlier and in the interim, in those 10 years since Eat, Pray, Love, you've written other books. I'm curious what you wish people would stop asking you about when it comes to that first Eat, Pray, Love.
1: You know what? I don't have that wish. I My feeling is that if it's a question that I've been asked a thousand times the person who's asking me it hasn't heard the answer yet. And if it's a question that's been asked a thousand times, it's because that's the thing people want to know and they're going to want to keep knowing it. And if they haven't heard it yet, then it's not a disservice. I don't consider it to be, I don't get pissy about it at all. I just think that the world was so generous to me about Eat, Pray, Love. The, the least I can do is is keep answering questions about it. And I also feel like if people come to hear me speak, it's kind of like, You know, if you go see John Mellencamp and he doesn't sing "Jack and Diane," like you're
0: gonna feel really disappointed.
1: (laughs) So, if you come and see me speak and I don't talk at all about "E-Pray Love," then I think that you're gonna rightfully be very disappointed. So, I don't, I don't mind answering those questions again and again.
2: And so, in that, you know, in the writing process over these past ten years, when you've been writing these other books, um, how much has travel played a role in your writing? Is it something that? inspires you before you've written? Do you travel and go to a writer's retreat or rent a house somewhere and and that's how it informs your writing? Or am I completely wrong and travel is totally separate from your writing at this point?
1: No, I mean, travel isn't separate from me. So it's not going to be separate from my writing in any way. And um, uh, I do like to go and be alone when it's time to actually sit down and create the book from the first page to the last, my, my preference is to be absolutely by myself for the entire time. Um, so that does often mean going off and, and getting, a, getting a quiet place someplace far away from everybody who I know and love. But it's also that travel informs the stories themselves. So I, I wrote a novel called The Signature of All Things, which was about a 19th century female botanist. And I God, I did practically as much travel in researching that book as I did with Eat, Pray, Love. It's it's a book that takes place over a century and a half that begins in in philadelphia and then it moves to england and then it goes to holland and then it goes to the south pacific to tahiti and i went to all of those places in order to explore those locations and find those um locales in order to write about it in a realistic way so any excuse that i have to use travel as like it's research i have to i've got to go to tahiti it's research (laughs) um i had no choice but to set my novel in the south pacific i've got to go to tahiti um so yeah that that i think that's always going to be a part of my work
0: I'm curious because your upcoming book, which will come out, I guess, right about when this podcast goes up, uh, "City of Girl," creates such a specific picture of New York. I'm curious how you went about, you know, recreating this New York of the 1940s.
1: Yeah, so here's the thing: it's not there anymore. You know, the New York City of the 1940s is is both gone and not gone, and and it's not gone because there are some theaters. Uh, it, my, my story takes place, it's about showgirls and dancers and actresses, and it takes place in the 1940s in midtown Manhattan. And so I found a historian who was able to walk me around midtown Manhattan and show me what was remaining, but also more importantly, show me what was gone and kind of tell me, like paint a word picture for me of what this street would have been like um, in the 1940s and and how much it changed after the Port Authority bus terminal came in and knocked down the entire block or whatever had, had been altered. Um... But there's also an element of New York that never changes. And I'm a New Yorker, and I I moved here for the first time 30 years ago, and it's no different. There's a line I have in the book where Vivian, my character, says, moving to New York City for the first time in your life is a really big deal, and and. It was no less of a big deal for me to do that in 1986 than it was for her to do that in 1939. And so there's a spirit that I was able to kind of tap into of just the excitement of being in the city that I don't think is any different. Um, and the kind of tone of the city isn't any different. New Yorkers are still New Yorkers. <laughs> um, uh, but it, but the rest of it I had to do just by doing a lot of historical research, sitting in, sitting in libraries and reading a lot of first-person accounts of people visiting New York in the 1940s to get it right.
2: After setting books in the South Pacific and um, traveling for all that research, kind of what led you to decide to set your latest book in New York, a place that, you, even if you didn't know that period, a place that you do know so well?
1: I've been wanting to write a love story to New York. I mean, I think every writer who lives in New York eventually wants to write the great New York novel. Um, I, I think. I would rather write the great New York novel than the great American novel because I identify so strongly as a New Yorker and New York has gave me my entire life you know I grew up on a small family christmas tree farm in New England and couldn't get out of that small town soon enough and just felt so cramped by it and and nothing nothing has ever welcomed me the way I feel like New York welcomed me. I, I know that it has a reputation for being tough and hard, but I always call New York the great mother because I feel like it it really gave me everything and everyone that I needed in my life in order to become myself as an adult. And so the story that I tell in City of Girls is about a young woman who has exactly that same experience and and who comes to New York in order to come into being and to learn the lessons that she needs to learn and find the community that she needs to learn. So, so it's, um, it was definitely, it's definitely a Valentine, um, and and I feel like it was long overdue. New York has given me so much; it's about time I gave it a novel in return.
0: <laughs> in New York in 2019, is there anywhere that you would send a first timer?
1: God, yeah, I would, I would tell them to walk along the rivers. Um, you know, when I first came to New York in 1986, I remember trying to do that and you couldn't because it was so first of all so dangerous. Like I remember walking down Christopher Street and trying to get all the way to the Hudson and and walking through, you know, like you know it was like transvestite prostitutes and the meat market that was actually a meat market and um the highway where there were there was no safe place to cross and piers that were literally falling into the river and there was no sense at that time that New York City you can forget when you live in New York that it's a waterfront city that it's a it's a harbor city the reason that it became so wealthy and so powerful was Originally, because of these great deep harbors that lead to the ocean, and you can live here for years and not remember that there's water here, because you spend so much of your time kind of in the center of the city. So I would, I would tell them, I mean, kind of, there's nothing better than the Staten Island Ferry to take the Staten Island Ferry in the afternoon and come back into the city as the sun is setting and to really get a sense of this great harbor at the south point of the city and the skyline, and both of the rivers feeding it and the ocean behind you. It's that would be my my number one thing.
2: So I have been in New York quite a few years now and I love it very very deeply in the way that you you know you love someone you're in a long-term relationship with
1: and I do you, do. you also hate it for the same oh, reasons exactly. that you, <laughs> that like, you hate someone much,
0: you're in a long-term relationship. she's trying to figure out how to how, how to delicately put that it. <laughs> yeah. Also, is terrible. Like that every
2: moment that I'm like, I love you, I want to cut up on a ball and cry. <laughs> um, and um, you know, and I so identify with that feeling of being in your very early twenties and moving to New York and that sheer excitement that is unparalleled. What do you do in New York to remind yourself of that feeling?
1: Well, first of all, walk in a neighborhood that you're not familiar with, because New Yorkers can become really provincial. Um, And, you know, once you've got your dry cleaner and your deli and your little hardware store and your cobbler and like your gym or whatever your thing is, like your world can get just as small in New York City as it can in whatever podunk place you came from originally that you left in order to come to New York and have an exciting life. And you have to be very careful not to let that happen. And I think the best way to, to make that not happen is to explore new neighborhoods on foot. I had a, um, I remember when I was working at a bar back in the 90s, um, my boss and the manager of the bar, created this amazing thing where they they were bored one night because there were no customers and they sat down and they wrote down on one set of slips of paper all the cross streets of new york and on other sets of slips of paper all the avenues and then they put them in two different jars and whenever they wanted to go out to eat, they would reach in and they would pull out one cross street and one avenue and they would go to there in a taxi and find a restaurant and eat. And um, and it was just a way of making sure that you don't get in the same rut where you're just ordering the same Thai food every night from the same place, which I'm very guilty of doing. And then they would end up in like wow, we never knew that there was a restaurant on 38th and 2nd, you know, that was really good. Who knew? So I think like pushing yourself to get outside of your own neighborhood, not necessarily, to me, it's not necessarily about, New York has never been about going to see all the great art or the great performances or, I mean, it's been so wasted on me in that regard. I think I've been to Carnegie Hall once and I've (laughs) been to Lincoln Center like maybe three times in the 30 years that I've lived here and I never go see plays on Broadway. I don't do any of the stuff that I feel like tourists do when they come to New York, but but what I do is I walk my ass off, and um, and I, and that's what makes me feel the same excitement that I
0: felt when I first came to New York.
1: In my novel, that's what my character and her, the love of her life, do is they spend their life walking around New York City, and that's how they fall in love.
0: Uh, is there anywhere that you go to escape when you're like, oh my gosh, I need to take a break and be reminded also that I don't want to live anywhere else? Um, I live so far from Central Park,
1: and it took me years to actually. Figure out how great Central Park was because I always lived in the East Village or the village and it just seemed like a whole other city. That's the thing about New York too, is that other neighborhoods just seem like other cities completely. But I only recently discovered the magic, like the true magic of Central Park. And so sometimes I can get myself motivated to get up there and just go walking through the ramble and it feels like you're in the country and it's so
0: great. The first time I got lost in the Ramble, I was like, I didn't know we had a forest. Yeah.
1: no kidding. With I was coyotes. not prepared for this. They, have ki- they
0: have coyotes. <laughs> they
1: have coyotes and hawks and like wildlife. It's, it's, it's wild. I once saw a
2: rat in Central Park and I was like, that's weird. I've never seen one <laughs> like in the wild.
1: <laughs> they're always just it's on the street. Natural habitat. <laughs> yeah. Rats can live in the woods. Yeah, like, how that's strange. That's not in, I thought not they on only the- lived in my laundry room. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm curious because you've obviously been public and are super open in sharing the course that your life has taken. And I'm wondering why it's been so important to you to bring us all along on this journey, whether it's on social media or in your books or in your interviews. Why has that been easy for you? Um, Well, I'm not a very
1: private person, for one thing. So there's a level at which I, I don't have the natural personality that most authors have. I think most authors become authors because they want to be alone and they want to make up worlds that nobody else is allowed into. And they don't want to have face-to-face communication with actual human beings. But I always say that I have the soul of a very serious author, but I have the, <laughs> the personality of an airline stewardess <laughs> or a, or an aerobics instructor. Like I like, pe- I like people and I like engaging with people and I care about people. And I, and I, I can't bear to learn something and not share it with the hope that it would be useful to somebody else. So the turnaround time for me in my own life, if I'm going through a crisis or a transformation and I've gleaned something from that, or I've been lucky enough to take a workshop and I've learned something or I've had a heartbreak and I've learned something or I'm grieving and I've learned something, the turnaround is very quick for me in wanting to disseminate that um, as fast as I possibly can because it just feels like it feels almost burdensome to have it only to myself if I feel like it would be of use to others. And I like the community. I, I, I know that social media brought us our current president and a bunch of other woes and has some very serious problematic issues, but I also... Have enjoyed that conversation um, and and creating a space where I don't know where you can talk about stuff with with people who you wouldn't be able to meet face to face. So I guess I just do it because I like it. Is that a, is that a good enough answer? <laughs> no, I had uh,
0: a great great answer.
2: answer. <laughs> do you ever feel the need to mute social media, even if it's just for a day or a weekend? Here's what I want to say about that.
1: You can mute social media whenever you want for whatever reasons that you want. You are not required to make a fucking announcement about it. This is something that really irritates me is when people decide that it is incredibly important that they tell everybody that they're not going to be on social media for whatever moral or ethical or like I'm, I'm on a cleanse showing off thing <laughs> reason that they feel that it's important. I feel like it's in a weird way and tends to be that they're leaving because they're like I'm tired of the narcissism but I feel like if you're leaving and you have to make an announcement that you're leaving that's kind of also narcissism <laughs> so just take your time like whatever if you need a weekend off take a weekend off but you're not you're not like the joint chief of staff we don't need to know where you are all the time so if it's really fine for you to just go and not tell us that you're going so so I often leave social media sometimes because i don't feel like i have anything i I only go on when i feel like i have something to say or when i'm bored or when i have a pretty picture to to post and so i it's not i don't have any kind of regular schedule with it so i will often not post something for a long period of time um but i try not to drag anybody into my drama about being on or off social media and my prayer is that you will all do the same
2: (laughs) i don't think anyone would notice if i went
0: on social media (laughs)
1: notice if I'm off either like it's there they really won't they only notice you when you put something there they don't notice you when you're gone
0: um I'm curious because last year you were also very public in sharing your grief and your grieving process after the loss of your partner and I'm just curious if you feel like travel influenced that process because you were so open about everything you were going through during that time
1: um I mean, let's see, I, I mean, grief is a kind of a landscape, it's a kind of traveling journey to be in grief, and and it's also, a, a, how can I say this, it's a, I feel like it's the greatest creative challenge of my life, and those two things, traveling and creativity, are obviously very important to me, and I've written a lot about them, and I share a lot about them. You know, grief is a landscape that you're learning how to navigate, and again, I would no more withhold critical information that I've learned that has helped me about grief than I would not tell you about a great restaurant <laughs> that, that I have learned about. I mean if I know about it and and, and it can make your life better than I'm going to tell you. Um, so it just seemed very natural for me at certain points and and with all of this, the only thing I'm following you guys are my instincts here. so I don't have I don't have a social media manager, I don't have a I don't have anybody advising me on how to do this. I, I just wait until I feel like there's something that I want to say and then I share it. And if I feel like it's too private, then I won't. But, but it, but again, I won't, <laughs> I don't feel the need to then make an announcement that something is too private. Like I've, I've seen people do that on social media too, which I think is very funny. And it's like, Okay, just be. <laughs> you don't you have just to told say, us. <laughs> just you, just yeah, like you don't have no one. You don't have to say anything if you want to. You don't have to go on social media to say I'm not saying anything about this. Just don't say anything about it until you're ready to say something about it, and then say something about it. I think we make it all a lot more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> and
2: so, in this past year, have you traveled much? And has travel sort of played a role in your healing process, which is obviously very ongoing.
1: Yeah, it, both the answer to both of those questions is yes, and um, and this is what this is a very almost radical thing to say, and I'm 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 saying it. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again in case anybody is listening to this who's suffering from grief and extreme loss, particularly if they feel as though they've lost the most important person in their life, who which is what I had lost. I think that we are here to be called upon to be very brave and very bold in the way that we think about our lives. And I think that the bravest and boldest question that, that I faced after Rhea died was was this, to pose it this way, to say that there is a life that I could only have had with Rhea, and that life is gone, and it cannot exist. The dream of the life that I wanted to have with her cannot be, and I have no control over that whatsoever. But there's also a life that I could only have had without her. And there are things that I would never have done in this world if she was still here because she wouldn't have been interested in them or it wouldn't have been. And I say this not only for anybody who's lost a partner or a loved one, to death, but also to the inevitable breakups of, of life and the, and the lost relationships. There was a life that you can only have with that person and that has to be grieved, but there's also a life you can only have without them. And the really bold question is, what can I do now that I never could have done had this person been in my life? Whether it was a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a mother or a father or a child even, what can I do now? That, that I couldn't have done. And am I brave enough and bold enough to embrace that and to say that this isn't the life that that I had asked for or wanted, but the life that I've gotten has some incredible possibilities in it as well, and I'm going to take them. So the way that I translated that into real life is that I'm turning 50 this year, and you know, I, my partner was gone, and I was like, what can I do that I couldn't have done? If she was here. And I figured that what that was was to go on a whole bunch of amazing adventures with my very closest friends. I'm lucky enough to have friends. I'm old enough now and lucky enough now to have friends that have been my friends for 20, 30, even 40 years. And so with each one of them, my favorite people in my life, I planned a trip this year. So that's what this year has been all about. So in January, I went to Mexico with my best friend since I was nine. And that was just all about having as many margaritas as you can humanly have (laughs) on a beach. Um, And in February I went to Hawaii with somebody who's been a friend of mine for 15 years who lives on the other side of the country who I love and never get to see. In April I took my parents to Hungary on a riverboat cruise because that was something they would never do. I'm about to go to (laughs) Norway and and Iceland with another really beloved friend. And then in September, I'm taking another friend to France for a hiking trip in Brittany. And I just feel like that's how I'm celebrating half a century on earth. And that's how I'm celebrating having the freedom to go and do these things. Um, So, and that's also how I'm walking through the grieving process. Um, And at the same time that I'm grieving the loss of Rhea, I'm also embracing the life that I get to have in a post-REA world, um, because I feel like that's the best way that I can possibly honor life itself, if that makes sense.
2: I think that's a really beautiful way of approaching it.
0: No, I, I agree. I, I'm curious how the planning process has been with your parents? With my parents? <laughs> well, um, my
1: dad can only be herded and organized by my mom. And my mom doesn't need anybody to herd and organize her. So essentially I just sent her the dates and said, meet me here and you figure out how to get dad there because you've been navigating him for um, almost 50 years now and (laughs) for over 50 years now. And it's your responsibility to make sure he has shoes and a passport and that he (laughs) actually gets there. Um, But, but she's awesome at that kind of stuff. So she, you know, I, I just uh, created the trip and then they showed up. (laughs) Have you traveled much with your parents in the past? I have, but not jointly, because I absolutely love my parents, but I love them even more separately <laughs> than I do together, because the dance that they do as a couple makes me want to pull my hair out sometimes. So um, a couple years ago, I had a circumstance where um, a number of my friends had their parents die that year. And these were parents who I had grown up in their houses with, or I felt like they were kind of my surrogate parents, so they were almost like relatives, and I realized how you know, these moments where you realize how fragile and short life is. And so I had decided that I would take each of my, my mom and dad on an epic trip, but separately. Um, because I also think it's awesome for them to get to be reminded that they are not just John and Carol's wife and husband. They are also their own self. And um, and they also, there's a person who they get to be when their spouse isn't around. And so, and I got to tailor the trip the two trips to each one of them specifically about what I knew that they would really be into. So they got to do stuff that the other one's not into. Um, so I took my mom on a, on a walking trip through Northern Greece where we did go to every single museum and learn all about culture and everything that she would love. And then I took my dad hiking in the Dolomites in Italy in a really rugged, kind of almost survivalist kind of way that I knew he would love. And um, And it was so special to get to have that time with them. And I knew I would never regret it you know never ever regret having created those trips. I've never regretted any trip I've ever been on with anybody that I loved. It's it's my very favorite way to get to spend time with people who I love.
0: How do you how do you manage other people's wants and needs with your own because obviously the way you travel, you know, you were saying with your mom, you went to a bunch of museums. How do you kind of Walk the line because I know we've talked about group travel being more complicated. Uh, than going yeah,
1: you know what, you guys? I'm I'm so fucking blessed and lucky and spoiled and like 98% of my life I get to do whatever I want. Like largely thanks to Eat <laughs> to be very honest. Like I don't, I my my hours really do mostly belong to me, and and I really do get to spend my hours and my days and my weeks and my months pursuing what I'm interested in and, and spending my time doing what I like. And so if I'm going to take somebody on a trip, my feeling is it's their trip. Um, and, and especially if they don't get to do that as often as I do, because I do get to travel a lot for work and for business and for research and just for pleasure. So my feeling is that's my mom's trip. I would rather put carpet tacks in my gums than go to a museum of Etruscan vases, but she wanted to do that. And I love her and I never get to spend time with her and the rest of my life, I never have to do that. So my job during that day was to hold her purse, one arm and hold her coat over the other arm and stand two feet behind her and watch as she walked through this museum and literally read every single word (laughs) on every single placard in every single exhibit. And I knew she was so happy because she always wants to do that and no one will do it with her. And I can go back to my life where I don't have to do that very soon. So it just felt like if you're going to make a gift of giving someone a trip, make sure that it's, it's for them truly, because that in a weird way then makes your heart Better, even though you're doing stuff that you don't want to do, <laughs> it makes your heart grow just to see somebody so happily getting to do something that they would never, ever get to do normally.
2: You know, you're famous for being a writer, but you're sort of equally famous for being a traveler. Um, do you think when you go on these trips with your friends or um, even, you know, friends of friends... Is there an expectation placed on you for how you plan a trip? Do people expect you to plan the whole trip? They shouldn't
1: because I'm a really shitty trip planner. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll buy you your plane ticket. I mean, normally the way that I like to do it is I'll say, like my trip that I'm doing in France, um, this 10-day walking trip in France that I'm doing with my friend Cree, She's her dad actually wrote a book called France on Foot that's a great book about how to walk the GR, which is this network of medieval paths that connect all the villages in France to all the other villages in France. And, you know, I look at it and my eyes just start to do that Apple rainbow wheel, <laughs> like laptop warning thing, because I, I can't imagine planning that. But she's really good at it. So, you know, the deal is I'll, I'm going to get our tickets, you know, I'll get us to Paris and then you're in charge of it from there on and I'll go wherever you want to go. Um, and I think everybody is a lot happier if they plan it than if I do. <laughs>
0: Feels like a good balance to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the questions that we ask a lot of the women who come on here is what other remarkable women either in your life or who you don't know that you just are obsessed with should we know about? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, Well, I'm going to
1: give you a couple writers. How about that? I think that a book that that came out this year that I absolutely loved is called Lost and Wanted. And it's a novel by Nell Freudenberger. And it's really, really good. It's a novel about female friendship and about death. The story is of a a physicist who's uh, a dear friend of hers, a, a longtime friend who she'd actually had kind of a falling out with, has died. And she feels this very strange, almost supernatural connection to her after her death. And she's trying to figure out what that is. It's a really, really beautiful book that's about, it's about physics and it's about loss, but it's also about a very real, I think, depiction of female friendship. So that would be a novel if you're traveling and you want to have a really good, juicy, intelligent, female-centered book. I would recommend that one. And um, and the other book that I would recommend is a nonfiction book that's coming out very soon um, that is called Three Women, and it's by um, a reporter named Lisa Tadeo. And she spent 10 years following these three women who were all having affairs and following their path of sexual desire, obsession, passion, the risks that they were willing to take for these love stories, the catastrophic sometimes consequences of it. It's an incredibly rich, complicated, I've never read anything quite like it, um, piece of reporting about female sexual desire. And I think it's really brilliant. And I think everyone will be talking about it soon. So um, those are the two women who I would love to have you know about.
0: Amazing. Well, we'll be sure to link uh, either order or pre-order for those books in the show notes. Liz, where can people keep up with you on the internet?
1: Um, I am on Instagram. I have the most ridiculous internet handles because it took me so long to get on social media that like anything that was resembling my name was long gone. <laughs> but um, I am Elizabeth underscore Gilbert underscore writer on Instagram. That's where I spend most of my time on social media. I used to be on Facebook um, a lot, but but I've found, like I think a lot of people have found like, gravitating toward Instagram is more satisfying. I'm on Facebook very rarely now at Gilbert Liz, and I cannot even remember where I am on Twitter. It's been so long. I feel like I, Twitter has just, uh, somebody asked me the other day, do you go on Twitter? And I said, no, for the same reason that I don't drink bleach. <laughs> um, it's just such a toxic environment these days. So, uh, anyway, um, if you can find me on Twitter, good luck. I, I don't think I've tweeted very much lately. But uh, yeah, that's where I am on social media.
2: When I go on Twitter, it feels like I've opened the door into a burning building and then I quickly shut it again. <laughs> yes. and <I'm> like,
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Step away from the burning vehicle. Do not go near it.
0: Amazing. Well, you will be able to find a link to Liz's latest book called City of Girls in the show notes, along with a really amazing travel story that you wrote about Indonesia for a Traveler a few years back in the show notes. Uh, you can find me at Oh hey There, Mayor. You can find me at La Hanna. And we'll talk to you next week.